Hi, Pastor Adam here. We are ending our month of February 2022, the month of family and solidarity. We're ending this month on legacy. What does a united family legacy look like? Should we even strive for it? Should we set up our families for success one, two, three, four, five, six generations down the road? What does scripture have to say about that? If you're interested in that, then this is probably the sermon for you. Okay, so today we are finishing our discussion on family. It's the final week of February, so this is my last, my last go for the next couple months. So I guess thank you for, thank you for having me up here and uh, entertaining what it is that I have to give you and having good conversations. I was able to make my rounds in a couple, including couple cell groups, including Jacob's new cell group, and discussion was good and productive, and uh, yeah, I hope that it continues to be that way for our final round. But we're talking about family, and we're talking about what it means to be in solidarity as a family, what it means to be united as individuals in our families, and we opened up our month, once again, one more quick review, we opened up our month talking about the basis by which families should be coming together, um, rather than any number of counterfeit ways that we could try to bond our family together, you know, bring our family together, have it, have it stick, um, we choose Christ as our head. And that's the biblical model for um, headship and the family and what we're actually united under. Um, it's the only true metric by which we can do that. So that was the first week of the month. And the following week we talked about the tension, as I said, we talked about the tension between family and church and how Oftentimes what we deal with as believers is this competition for loyalty, competition for allegiance when it comes to family and the church. Rather than be collaborators with one another, we, we allow competition. You know, we are, we are complicit in that, so we are at fault in that even. We allow the two worlds to be separate from each other rather than try to unite them together. There's reciprocity when it comes to family and the church and the relationship between the two and the dynamic and so what are we doing or not doing toward that end that was the second week um, then of course last week we talked about the consequences when God's hope and intention for the family um, is upset by sin and we looked at some examples from the Old Testament scriptures um, specifically honed in on the story of Joseph and his brothers um, we looked at the really messed up lineage that we see throughout the book of, of Genesis. This one book alone, and it's this soap opera of family strife and family um, quarreling and division and disunity, um, people sowing seeds of disunity amongst themselves. Um, yeah, and as I said, we, we, looked at, we looked at Joseph in particular, really, really honed in on that. Um, and far from seeing Joseph's heart, Christ's heart for the family, what we see nowadays is an encouragement that we um, forsake the family, that we abandon the family. Um, we don't see that solidarity, right? We, we give up on it too easily with things like divorce or allowing our kid to choose their own path, you know, figure out for themselves what truth is, all these different things that you see in the world today. We relegate relationships to being less than they actually are, less important than, than they are, to something disposable rather than something that is a gift given to us from God that we should use and interact with 
in a very specific way. Um, yeah, we see, if we see families on both sides of the aisle, you know, believers and non-believers, in a repetition of this sinful lineage when it comes to family rather than a redemption that we see, for example, through someone like Joseph and the heart he had for his family. So what are we going to do differently? And that's the note that we ended on last week. What are we going to do differently for our families? So today, as a natural follow-up to what I, what, last week, at least in my mind, last week's discussion in cell group and such, I want to end on the importance of legacy. What are we hoping um, for? What are we working toward when it comes to being united as a family? Is your family set up in a way that will stand the test of time? Can what you implement now provide something meaningful to your generations to come, to the future family that you have? Short answer, yes. So, that's it. I'm just kidding. Short answer, yes. What you can set up now can be meaningful for your future descendants, but only under God. Can scripture shed light on that? Can scripture shed light on the significance of familial solidarity and how that's a true blessing for the who's and the what's that are to come after you, long after you're gone? As we say often around here, you know, how successful you were at teaching something, at passing on truth is not, you know, from what necessarily we only see now, but what we see from your kids' kids, you know? It's not just, will your kids repeat what, what they learned from you, you know, living in truth, living for God, serving God, and all these things, but will their kids do it, and will their, your grand, great-grandkids do it, and all these things. The true marker for how successful you were at um, fostering a godly legacy is in the generations to come. So the scripture sort of shed light on that. Um, so let's, let's just get into it. So legacy, spiritual legacy, to be clear, it should be one of our biggest driving forces for purpose in life, just purpose in general. It's one of the first things that man was ever given, was ever told to do, was establish legacy. Go out into the world, duplicate what it is that I've given you. Do this to the family. These are the things we've touched on numerous times throughout this month. Legacy is the driving force behind the commission we're given by Christ. But it's not a legacy of our own. It's not a legacy of my own name and my own will on the world. It's not a legacy of Wendy, just because you caught my eye. It's not a legacy of Wendy Vasquez or a legacy of John Parker or a legacy of Adam. It's a legacy of, of God. Uh, Matthew 28 says that we are to go out, we are to make disciples in the name of God, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Teach these disciples to obey the commands I have given you. Be sure of this. I am with you always to the end of the age. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. The type, the type of legacy we're after is the result of our unification under God's banner rather than our own. That's the type of legacy we're after. 
unification, solidarity under God's name rather than me. We live in a time of spiritual and moral decline in a place where that decline is celebrated even, particularly in a place like we live here in Portland. And we should ask ourselves, how can we build a a meaningful legacy in a time and in a place like this during such a time of decline? For many believers, they find themselves in one of a few places when it comes to this, when it comes to legacy, passing on what it means to be a family united under the banner of God, if you will. You have the people that are already sort of in the middle of it, right? Their dad or maybe their grandpa, you know, was faithful, and they brought up their family in that way. And so now you have you, if that's you, and you have a choice to make, right? Am I going to continue to steward that legacy in the direction of God and being faithful and serving and living for God in all the ways that that means? Or am I going to fumble that? So we have that group of people. We have the group of people who are first-generation believers, right? They weren't taught God's ways, God's commands. They weren't exposed to Scripture and truth in their life. And so they come to God fresh. They come to God um, without any prior um, help. They come to God um, of their own convictions and, um, yeah, God led them to him outside of any sort of previous influence that they had or didn't have. Um, Yeah, and that that can be sloppy or not perfect, but they're first generation, right? They're figuring out what it means to be a disciple of Christ. And they're not perfect, but they're there. They're trying to start something fresh, something new. That's me. I'm sure that's some of you. I know it's some of you. And then you have the third group of people. People who had the legacy left for them, but they just let it come to a a screeching halt. They didn't steward it as they should have. It's been said that we're always one generation away from, you know, chaos, from abandoning God. I think there's a Joker line somewhere in there revolving, you know, one being one bad day away. <laughs> but it's, it's, that's, that's a thing. When it comes to legacy and passing things on, the mark of how successful we're going to be is who picks it up after us and what they do with that. And so in a sense, we're always one generation away from devolving into the decline that I had mentioned. This may be the most often used verse in the Bible when it comes to family legacy. It's one that I use this month even. Um, it's one that you see on, on the walls of a family home. You know, as for me and my household. Exactly. Good job. Uh, Joshua 24:15. We'll serve the Lord. As for me and my household, we'll still serve the Lord. It's a bold statement. It's a good one. And it's one we should strive for. It's a statement by a dedicated father that resounds throughout history. But was Joshua successful? You guys know? Scripture informs us that in Judges chapter 2, verse 7, the Israelites served the Lord through the lifetime of Joshua and the leaders who outlived him, those who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. 
But as mentioned, the mark of how successful we were, we were at stewarding a proper righteous legacy united under God isn't what the generation now does. It's what the generations that come do with that. Um, and it says in Judges chapter 2, verses 10 through 15, after that generation died, it says, another generation grew up who did not acknowledge the Lord or remember the mighty things that he had done for Israel. The Israelites did evil in the Lord's sight and served the images of Baal. They abandoned the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt, and they went after other gods. They abandoned the Lord to serve Baal and the images of Ashtoreth, and they angered the Lord. This made the Lord burn with anger against Israel, so he handed them over to the raiders who stole their possessions. He turned them over to their enemies all around the world, and they were no longer able to resist them. Every time Israel went out to battle, it says they, the Lord fought against them, causing them to be defeated, just as he had warned, and the people were in great distress. So, was Joshua successful? Maybe that's harsh. I don't know. Maybe that's a harsh standard to put on Joshua. It says that the people during his day served faithfully, but the next generation that rose up, they completely abandoned God. Could it be possible to have Joshua for your father and yet not know his God? Or your grandfather and yet not know his God? The Bible doesn't say anything about Joshua's kids, necessarily. We don't know, like, did his household continue to serve the Lord? We don't know. It doesn't say. It says that the Israelites in general, as we know, and as they do, start their perpetual cycle of sinning against God and then coming back to God and sinning against God and coming back to God. So we don't really know what happened to Joshua's family in specific, but the people he led started that path, started that perpetual cycle of sin. As we got a glimpse of last week in Genesis, it's not easy to find perfect families in Scripture. Perfect families who love and serve the Lord and it's happily ever after, right? We don't, see, we don't see those types of stories very often in Scripture. We see imperfect people. We see lineages corrupted by sin. We see legacies that are fumbled. We see families that don't stay united. Israel, in particular, never takes long to divert from the legacy that was set before them. We see Adam, just to quickly recap, Adam rebelling in Eden, Cain killing his brother, Noah recognized, recognized as the only righteous man left on earth, um, but look at what his son did. His son betrayed his father, shamed him. His son's family cursed forever after that, the Canaanites. Abraham is the fire, father, fire, the father to the entire Jewish nation, the model man for faithfulness, the way in which we come to God through faith. But Abraham wasn't perfect. Ishmael wasn't his heir. We see Jacob steal his brother's birthright. We see him father sons who are terrible. We talked about that last week. 
Jacob's sons, the ones who betrayed their brother and sold him into slavery. These were the patriarchs of Israel, right? These were, these were the people who set up God's holy, holy nation. And look at their legacies. Eli, to continue the narrative for you. Eli was the chief priest during the time of the judges, but his sons, Hophni and Phinehas, were so evil, it says in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 25, that God had them killed. The chief priest's two sons, so evil that God had him killed. Samuel, who replaced Eli, had two sons who also grew up evil. 1 Samuel chapter 8, 1 through 8. King David, a man after God's own heart, as we know, suffered repeatedly because of his children, his own self too, but his children. His son Amnon raped his sister. 2 Samuel chapter 13, 1 through 22. His son Absalom murdered his brother Amnon and eventually led a revolt against his father in 2 Samuel chapter 13 again, 37 verse through 39. One of David's other sons, Adonijah, attempted to usurp his dad's kingdom near the end of his life on his deathbed. Usurp his father's kingdom. 1 Kings chapter 1. doesn't take long for the lineages of these people, these great patriarchs in Jewish history, for their legacy to unravel, for disunity to, to begin. Many of the noblest kings of Judah raised evil sons, evil people. King Jehoshaphat was a godly king, but he was succeeded by an evil son. Hezekiah, a godly king, succeeded by Manasseh, one of the most evil kings in Judah's history. You can read about that in 2 Kings. Just go read 2 Kings, Samuel. Go read the Old Testament. 2 Kings, chapter 21. King Josiah, another righteous king, succeeded by sons who were wicked and brought the kingdom to its final ruin. We're not talking about grandkids even. Forget that. These people can't even get their sons to steward the legacy that they were trying to create for their families. The history of Israel's lineage and legacy is, is messy. It goes from loving, honoring, serving, and living faithfully one moment to a complete abandonment of those ways in the next. fear of repetition, because I've been saying it consistently, that's not what God wants for our families. It's not what he had set out when he created the family. And that's not how it has to be. These are popular Old Testament figures, and their struggles are on display so that I can bring you to a pretty obscure person in Scripture. And I'm pretty sure like 99% of you have never even heard his name. But correct me if I'm wrong. Jehonadab. Even Josh is going like this. Have I heard of Jehonadab? I'm sure he has. How many people have heard about the story of this guy? 
pretty obscure. But it's on point for what we're talking about. Through Jehonadab, another spelling of his name is Jonadab, so I might just say Jonadab for the ease of my speaking so I don't look dumb. Through him, we get a glimpse into the way God responds when a family moves in solidarity and when legacy is preserved for several generations. This is the same Jehonadab that you see in 2 Kings chapter 10, verses 15 through 27, for the sake of time and boring you with Old Testament history and context and everything. I'm going to tell you that it's just a brutal story of godly men going and slaughtering Baal worshippers. <laughs> but if you want to read it, by all means, go to 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 15 through 27. Same guy. Same guy that's mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 10, mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 35, which is where I'm going to pull from. There's an author who wrote about Jehonadab, who said that he may be the greatest dad in the whole Bible. It's a strong statement, but maybe it's because he succeeded in securing multiple generations of faithful descendants during a time of moral and spiritual decline, which is where he was at in that time in Israel. Not only was Jonadab, Jehonadab, whatever you prefer, not only was he successful in producing future generations of faithful children, as I said, he did it in an ungodly place during a time of great opposition toward God abandonment of God and his people. And I point to him because of how unspectacular this guy was. You know, he wasn't a great king. He wasn't a great anything. He was just a man. Just like you and me. Just a normal person. He wasn't one of the patriarchs of the nation like we've been talking about. He was an unspectacular dude, but a faithful one, and one who brought his family righteous and pure before God in the way that he started a legacy that was righteous and pure. He was a common man in the land of the northern tribes of Israel during a reign of Ahab, a bad king, and his wife Jezebel. The prophet Elijah encountered both and battled the wicked prophets of Baal at Mount Carmel, and Israel was in the deepest part of its spiritual wickedness when we hear about this guy, Jehonadab, and his descendants. God and his prophets and his people were under assault as, spiritual, as their spiritual heritage was being sold off and given away to idol worshipers, to Baal worshipers. The timeline of, timeline of events is helpful to understand the extent of Jonadab's spiritual legacy and significance of it. Around the year 1000 BC is the general time of the United Kingdom of Saul, David, and Solomon. And at the very beginning of the kingdom, after the northern kingdoms, this is context that's important, so bear with me, okay? Don't fall asleep on me because I'm talking about Old Testament history. I, right now, I've only got Pastor Monty. He's stoked about this. But bear with me. This is significant. 
It's during the United Kingdom of these guys. And after the Northern Kingdom's first king, Jeroboam, the prophet Ahijah, Ahijah, names, okay? Let's move on. Names. (laughs) They give a prophecy in 900 B.C. that the Northern Kingdom would be destroyed, would be punished for their wickedness, for their evilness, for their abandonment of God. And they would be never heard from again. And it would be sometime later, in 800-ish, 840, that Jonadab came on to the scene. And as I said, it's the time of Elijah, the prophet. And Jehu is the king of Israel. And this is the guy you'll hear about if you pick up where I left off in 2 Kings chapter 10 and read about the brutal slaughter of Baal worshippers. It's King Jehu who leads that. So it's during the time of these people. And eventually, in 722 B.C., the Assyrian invasion of that kingdom comes and removes the people of the land, just as the prophecy foretold. The southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin escape the Assyrian invasion, but eventually, in 600, the Babylonians conquered. So there's a gap in there, 720, 600, of about 120 years between the time of Jonadab and the Assyrian captivity, the Assyrian invasion. And Jonadab, during this time of prophecy and all this knowing what's coming, he instructed his family that that was coming, that judgment was coming. And that to be prepared for the coming judgment, he gave them some things to follow, so that they were marked apart from the rest of the wicked nation. He made his family into nomads, you know, live in tents, don't drink wine, be separate from the rest of the world around you. But it would be generations before the judgment came. His children followed in faith and in obedience, most likely with great opposition from their neighbors, who will probably accuse them of being weirdos. Don't drink wine, live in tents, like we have lavish buildings, you know, all these things. So from the time of Jonadab to the time of Jeremiah, which I'm about to read, where we see his descendants, you know, Jonadab's long gone by now, where we see his descendants still faithfully following their father's legacy, there's a span of 240 years. So I lay that out so that you can understand 240 years of lineage that keeps the legacy intact. Six generations of people-ish. So Jeremiah chapter 35. I'm going to read it. If you want to follow, that's where I'm at. Jeremiah chapter 35. There's going to be a lot of names and that type of thing. Bear with me. This is the message the Lord gave Jeremiah when Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, was king of Judah. Go to the settlement where the families of the Rechabites live and invite them to the Lord's temple. Take them into one of the inner rooms and offer them some wine. So I went to see Jazaniah, son of Jeremiah, and grandson of Habazaniah, and all of his brothers and sons, representing all the Rechabite families. Um say, I'm drawing, I'm drawing a blank on our guy's name because I've been using two different names and it's, it's, 
it's causing me to mess up, but um, yes, his father was Rechab. So the Rechabites, these are his people, okay? Giving you just the context I miss. Um, Take them into one of the inner rooms and offer them some wine. Verse 3, so I went to see Jezaniah, son of Jeremiah, and grandson of Habizaniah, and all his brothers and sons, representing the Rechabite families. I took them to the temple, and we went into the room assigned to the sons of Hanan, son of Igdaliah, a man of God. This room was located next to the one used by the temple officials, directly above the room of Messiah, and son of Shalom, the temple gatekeeper. Verse 5, I set cups and jugs of wine before them, invited them to have a drink, but they refused. No, they said, we don't drink wine, because our ancestor Jehonadab, son of Rechab, gave us this command. You and your descendants must never drink wine, and do not build houses or plant crops or vineyards, but always live in tents. And if you follow these commands, you will live long, good lives in the land. So we have obeyed them in all of these things. We have never had a drink of wine to this day, nor have our wives our sons, or our daughters. We haven't built houses or owned vineyards or farms or planted crops. We have lived in tents and have fully obeyed all the commandments of Jehonadab, our ancestor. But when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon attacked this country, we were afraid of the Babylonian and Syrian armor, so we decided to move to Jerusalem, and that's why we're here. Verse 12, Then the Lord gave this message to Jeremiah. This is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Go and say to the people in Judah and Jerusalem, come and learn a lesson on how to obey me. The Rechabites do not drink wine to this day because their ancestor, Jehonadab, told them not to. But I have spoken to you again and again, and you refuse to obey me. Time after time I sent you prophets who told you, turn from your wicked ways and start doing things right. Stop worshiping other gods so that you might live in peace here in the land I have given to you and your ancestors. But you would not listen to me or obey me. The descendants of Jehonadab, son of Rechab, have obeyed their ancestor completely, but you refuse to listen to me. Therefore, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Because you refuse to listen or answer when I call, I will send upon Judah and Jerusalem all the disasters that I have threatened. And verse 18 and 19. Then Jeremiah turned to the Rechabites. These are the sons of Jehonadab. And this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. You have obeyed your ancestor, Jehonadab, in every respect, following all his instructions. Therefore, this is what the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of Israel, says. Jehonadab, son of Rechab, will always have descendants who serve me. So through Jeremiah, God instructs these descendants of Jehonadab that their families, their family lines, would continue throughout future generations of Israel. And if you don't know, that's usually something reserved for those prominent figures in Jewish history, those patriarchs. Your descendants will be as, as many as the stars, you know? these things that we hear God say to people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he says here to these ancestors, because of who they were and 
maintaining the legacy that their ancestor, Jehonadab, set out for them, he said, you will always have descendants who serve me. It's pretty profound. As I said, that's something that's usually only reserved for the more prominent figures in the nation of Israel. But Jehonadab, he lived in difficult times. And it was a time of corruption, politically, socially, you name it, moral decline, spiritual decline. In 2 Kings chapter 10, it's chaos. It's filled with worship of Baal, spiritual compromise. Israel fully engaged in that kind of thing. And the Lord sends his prophets Elijah and Elisha to confront the people and the leaders, but the idolatry just continued. And the mountains of Israel were places where the wicked religious practices flourished, where pagan religion flourished. But Jehonadab was like, nah, not for me, not for my family, not for the next 240 years. He didn't actually say that, but the proof is in the pudding, right? That's the fruit of his, his mindset and his work. And this guy, as I said, he's a common guy. He doesn't come from a place of, you know, total purity. His father was a murderous man, you know, and every time that this guy's mentioned in scripture, it's attached to his father's name. That's the legacy that he was left. But he decides, he decides to be in pot two, if you remember, the three groups of people. He's going to start something different. He was a man of total obscurity, but a man who had the foresight for his family to set up something different. And his family obeyed him. He wasn't a priest or a prophet. There's no mention of this guy for 250 years in biblical history. Until we see him come back in Jeremiah chapter 35. When God uses his story in contrast to the people who abandoned him. Talking about, look at these people. They obeyed their ancestor. They had the same struggles that you did. They were faced with the same temptations. They were living in the same time of corruption, of sin. But look at them. He's an interesting case study in that regard. Jonadab. He built his life on God, on his word, and through his prophets. He knew the prophecy about Israel's destruction. And he's like, no, I ain't going to be part of that. My family's not going to be a part of that. And so he ordered his family to live like nomads so that they can be ready when that invasion came, when that prophecy was going to be fulfilled. He had zero tolerance for sin. Again, go read 2 Kings chapter 10. He was part of the group that slaughtered a bunch of Baal worshippers because of his zeal for God. He was discerning of the times. 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, should be one that's etched on uh, the firesmith's hearts because it talks about tribes of Issachar. Jehonadab is not from the tribe of Issachar, but he's right there with them in spirit. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, it says that the men of Issachar were men who understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. They're singled out 
for their hypervigilance and discernment on where to take their people. This is who Jehonadab showed himself to be. And in the same spirit, he knew which direction to take his family. 240 years is a long time. Can I imagine, can you imagine your sons and grandsons and great-grandsons doing what you had hoped they would do 240 years from now? Like, a lot of us don't even think past our own kids, let alone six generations. That's pretty substantial. And he was intentional. He was intentional where to take his family, how to have them be set apart, even when it was weird. <laughs> Go live as nomads in tents. Yep, they were probably looked at weirdly for that. But because of these things, because of his intention for setting a different legacy, for his family to be in solidarity for that, it says that God blessed him and his descendants forever. And that leaves us with a great challenge, something to think about in our own lives and in our own families. Whether you're in the group of people who are trying to steward what has already been passed to you, you know, my, my dad, my granddad, my grandma, whatever, they passed on what it means to be Christian to me, and so now I have a responsibility, and I'm going to do what I can to steward that. Or you're the other person who comes fresh, trying to start something new, planting a flag for God now. Whether you're in either of those groups of people, this challenge is before us to be like him. What are you doing to uphold and or create, uphold or create, so the two groups of people, for your own families, a life of love and service to God, of obedience, of faithfulness to what you had hoped that they would be and do. Can't be enough to come here every Sunday, right? The starting point in terms of what your kids know about you and will hopefully repeat. But are you creating an atmosphere of constant dialogue about the faith that we profess? Or are you creating an atmosphere of sports and movies in your family? Of barbecuing? Whatever your thing is. I can IMDB trivia with the best of them. Seriously. I can, okay? When I watch soccer games, I say things before the broadcasters say them, and it makes me feel like I should be doing what they're doing. <laughs> I'm serious, me and my brother joke about this. I can remember the names of Star Wars planets that I wish I couldn't, but I can, okay? But what good is all of that for my kids? and my kids' kids, and six generations of my family down the line, hundreds of years. When I'm IMDb trivia-ing with the best of them, am I thinking 240 years down the line what that's gonna do for them? To throw you back to the 2018 Josh again, a godly family has the power to affect things beyond the now. 
a godly family, has the ability to reach into the future and bestow blessings upon the next generation of God's people. Hey, you said that. You said that. That's a good one. But only when it stands in solidarity for God. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5 and 7, 5 through 7. Paul says to him, Timothy, I remember your genuine faith, for you share that faith that first filled your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. And this is why I remind you to fan the flames of your gift, the one God gave you when I laid my hands on you. For God has not given us the spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, but of, power of love, and of self-discipline. Timothy was able to teach these things because of what he inherited, and Paul encouraged him, Keep towing the line. He took seriously the teachings of, his, of the matriarchs in his family. The lessons that they learned from scripture. They taught, they taught him to be righteous, and now he was going to teach others. And Paul encourages him in this. There was at least some sense of righteous solidarity within his family, which produced, I don't know how to say it, legacy fruit. Copyright. Trademark. When we orient ourselves positively toward God in each of the challenges that we've been talking about, scripture, history, scripture, records God's blessings will be with us. So, for God, for our families, now, and in 240 years, let's move in confident hope of that when we talk about family solidarity and ushering in a legacy of that. So my questions for you guys, remember we're going to do our cadre presentation, so I'll invite Brittany up here. My questions for you today and finally for this month are this. When you are before God, what's he going to say your family was about? What was your family united under? Second, what legacy are you creating or maintaining for your great-grandchildren? Six generations even, down the line. What legacy are you creating or maintaining? What are you doing to make sure that that stays intact? Third, what's been your greatest challenge in creating a righteous legacy for your family? What's been your greatest challenge in creating a righteous legacy for your family? Is it your family itself? Is it the world around you, some sort of outside influence? Is it the city of Portland that's in spiritual and moral decline that creates obstacles for you? What's been your greatest challenge? And then lastly, since it's my last sermon of the month, what will you take away from this month's discussion? How can you implement what you have learned now so that you can set up success for your family in the future?